0: Hi, I'm Deepak and you're listening to the Meaning Quotient Podcast, a place where we celebrate human potential through stories of finding personal meaning. Today we have with us Corina, a German radio generalist who non-violently fighted for the rights of Native Americans and in the process found her own personal meaning. Hi Corina. welcome to Meaning Quotient Podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here today.
1: Thank you, Deepak. It's such a pleasure to be here and meet you and have the opportunity to talk about my life. Can
0: you tell me something about your childhood? What are the memories you have which might have shaped you as you are today?
1: I grew up in a large extended family at my mom's side. So we were many, I had many cousins and the the lucky part is that we all knew each other because we had this common piece of property that we had to tend to and to share. So I had, I gained a lot of community skills when I was young. And I had these extremely tough women, my grandmother and her sisters, her six sisters. They were alone in the war. So it was kind of like a feminine dominated family.
0: Wow, it's in Germany, if I'm not wrong.
1: In Germany, yes. Yeah. At the Lake of Constance. Ah. So, I had these strong role models and the strong feminine-dominated family that made me never in my life restricted by being a woman. I always had the feeling that I could do whatever I wanted. I wasn't restric- restricted to women's jobs or women's things to do. So, it gave me a big freedom. Wow. and. The other side of the story was the, also it was this big family. I felt very safe and very kept. So I think it made me able to live the life that I did with a lot of travels, traveling around the world and, and feeling safe that as there would always be a place to come back to.
0: Wow! Can you tell me one memory when you were in that community house, what was happening
1: so we were there each in our vacation times and I remember that there were heaps of other cousins and children and we played together, we were wild, we were running around for noon, our parents would kind of look up for us and bring us some food and there was a the lake to swim in and we had a lot of common chores, we had to mow the lawn and, and harvest apples and, and help and pitch in to, to keep the property. Uh-huh. So and it was always, you know, the the interesting thing was to get to know all your cousins. In my generation, we were over fifty cousins wow. and brothers and first grade and second grade and and now we it's more than two hundred. Wow! So it was a. a unique experience that I had in Germany. Not a lot of Germans grew up like that. Yeah.
0: And you also talked about the post-war experience. So what was the impact of the war on that?
1: Well, the, these women, they kept everything together. When the men were out in war, they had all these children and, and they all came there to the land and they grew their own food because there wasn't enough otherwise. And, and um there were other children too that were put there so they would be safe from the cities. So it was just a big women's community. They wow. they just had to go through the war without their men there and take care of all these children. A lot of them had four or five or six children. So it was already in the generation above me. It was a big crowd of people there.
0: Wow. A lot of men never came back.
1: Yes. That was very sad. And with that, we can go to the story of my other part of the family. Please. Because my mom was like, I think, 14. She was the eldest when her dad fell in the war. And she was very responsible. She had to take care of all these kids because my grandma was kind of lost in grief. So when she met my dad, she was just happy there was a person in her life to to share all this heaviness and all the chores. So she lived the total opposite of the strong women life. She would just be so happy when my dad would say where to go and what to do. That was very interesting. So I had on one hand, I had this patriarchal part of my family and on the other hand, this matriarchal part. So it was an interesting, uh, how do you say, tension yeah. Between those two poles in my life wow. that I always felt. And interesting enough, also I was the only girl. I had three brothers. And so with everything that you you, you gain and lose as a princess, as the only girl, <laughs> that made me a, a very sensitive person to... To feel what's going on in other people and to feel how the mood is in big crowds. And my dad loved to go to the mountains. So, very young, he took us into the mountains for days, hiking. That was the other story that made me fit for life. I could like, um, I learned how to pace my energy, how to how to get around in nature, to love nature. And uh, so I had a lot of good skills learned in my early life.
0: <laughs> so on one hand, you have this deep nature, then you have your brothers, these emotions, and then you have this patriarchal and metriarchal structures together. Were you fitting in all of them or you like one of them more than other?
1: It was not easy as a child. I think through all these, especially growing up in a patriarchal, the small family unit was very patriarchal. And it made me not wanting to be like my mom and, and not wanting to be dominated by men. And um, it was a, a struggle all my life. Sometimes in a relationship I, I would feel that I would fall into the role of my mom. And then I could, it wouldn't last long because it wasn't mine. So I had to go out of it again. <laughs> and so it was, this, it was a constant struggle for me. And on the other hand, the positive thing is that it really made me a very independent thinking person. That is fit and fast in connecting worldwide important things. And it made me very, I would say, aware and open and, and conscious about what's happening. Around you. Mm-hmm.
0: Tell me more about the nature because you have a special connection to the nature.
1: Yes, I mean... My real connectedness to nature came very later. Okay. I was all, felt always close to nature, and even as a child, I had this experience that we were supposed to go to church on Sunday, growing up in a Catholic environment. And one Sunday, I escaped into the forest. I said, I'm not going to church. And I went off, and I went into the forest, and I said, wow. And I found this meadow and these trees, and I thought, wow, this is a such a better place to pray than in in the church where we didn't have the the nicest priests all the time. (laughs) They were very strict with the kids and so I thought, wow, here I can be free and I can feel connected to nature and it it felt way more like praying than in the church very early. And later on, I went to travel to the U.S., and before I went there, I had all these dreams about the landscapes there that I've never seen. And when I got there, I re—I recognized those landscapes that I had seen in my dreams. So I felt so connected to the land, and I—I I had these experiences where I felt I become one with nature. Wow. And that was—I'm very thankful for those. And there's these things that like when you. As a kid, you know, all the Germans, they read Karl May and all those Native American stories. Of course, I was the same way. And they always tell you that water is sacred. But then when I was out there in the nature at one time, sitting on a small creek, it really came to me. And I realized, yes, water is sacred. It's like a realization. You hear it and you hear it over again and you think, yes, yes, yes. But then there's this moment where you really realize that it's true. So things like this happened in my life.
0: And you said when you went to U.S., how old were you then?
1: It was in my early twenties? How do you say? Twins? Twenties. Twenties, in my early twenties. I went there. I had two years of studying graphic arts behind me. And I went with a cousin of mine out of my big family, and we went to see another cousin of mine. <laughs> <laughs> and he worked for an organization that took care of Native American land rights. And when we got there to meet him, we put his stuff and he moved to the project he was working for into the Black Hills. That's a sacred land for the Lakota Native Americans. And this land has been taken away from them 200 years ago, illegally. But at the same time when the court ruled that it was taken away illegally, the court ruled that they cannot have it back. They can only have the money back that it was worth back then. And until today, they refuse to take the money so this was an initiative to get a piece of that land that was still in public hand back. And there were different laws in the US that they would go for. And um when we got there it was like they invited us. We ate with them. They never asked us for money. We came because we are we were part we were the cousins of my cousin and he would work for the project. So we were just welcome and everyone never asked us to, you know, to pay or do anything. And um, after two, three days, we realized that the U.S. Army would come in, so within a week or so, to evict the whole camp. And they had trained three units of the U.S. Army. They would come with helicopters, automatic weapons, gas, and trying to evict the whole thing. And at the first, we got really afraid, and we wanted to to leave. But then we realized those people, they had been so hurtful, and it was so unjust. At that time, racism was a big deal in South Dakota. And um, like when we were in town with our native friends, nobody would talk to us. But when we were in town alone, people would be friendly to us. So it was very hard. We also... Met ranchers shooting down into the camp where children were playing and all this kind of stuff. So it was not, it was very interesting the whole situation. And we realized that now that we are here and they need our help, we are going to stay and help out. They claimed that they will defend themselves, and we said, we are not going to do anything with weapons. And so I started to organize nonviolent resistance to help, to help them. I just couldn't bear the injustice that I felt. And um, I activated Greenpeace, a German organization. It's called GFBV, the Society for Threatened People. And I knew somehow that we had to do more. We worked together with U.S. uh, environmental organizations. They had two native lawyers that would tell us what the U.S. Army would do and how they would come in. And um, we called all our family members and asked them to call the U.S. embassies and let them know what's happening, that that it's not okay. And the U.S. embassies, they are obliged to tell their government what's going on. So we, until today, we think we have been a big part of the very morning when they were supposed to be evicted, that the whole process was stopped. Oh. But we didn't know until the end. Nobody told us that it was stopped. So we we knew the Greenpeace people were there, we had different camps on different locations, and... We put up our tents in a little forest right on the defense line of the camp. It was a big meadow where the helicopters would come, where the soldiers with the automatic weapons would jump out of the helicopters and start the fight. And on the other hand, the crazy thing was that it was a bunch, about 40, 50 Native Americans, all the children and the women, they left the camp. And the so-called death fighters came in. That's Those people, they were so poor, they had nothing to lose. Some of, one of them told me that sometimes when he doesn't have anything to eat, he's going to kill a street dog and grill it to have food. Uh-oh. And suddenly the whole feeling in the camp got kind of wild and rough. But I felt that these people have a very, very good heart. They were ready to give their own life for their people. And it was the same for us. I realized when we put up our camp that that's what we do. We put up our life out there because if we would run out when the helicopters come, we would be the first moving thing there and we would be the first to be shot. And... um, even though I realized that, I thought, yes, I'm going to do it because it's not right what's happening here. And it changed my life.
0: And you were in your early 20s, potentially one of the first outside Germany experiences.
1: Well, I had a lot of travels within Europe, but it was my first travel outside of Intercontinental. Europe. Intercontinental, yes. Yeah. Uh. And the other thing was, it changed my life because this connection to the Native American culture never really stopped to be there for me. And um, we were allowed to learn so much with them. They integrated us in their rituals. And I was always kind of a spiritual searcher when I was a kid growing up in the Catholic Church. And when I was there, sometimes they did ritual just outside in nature and we had different chores like keeping this the gates safe and stuff checking that nobody comes in and things like this and one time they did a ritual and i came late and they had a circle in the forest and it was a naming ceremony of a little boy and i stepped into the circle and i felt a difference it was i felt it and i said wow what's different here and i stepped back and it was gone and I stepped forward in the circle again, and I felt it again. And it was, and I found something, you know. I found something that I was always looking for in 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 my young age. What and was that? It was this feeling that really something is happening in ritual, and it was so deep that when I came home after seven months, I fell into a deep, deep, deep depression. I was supposed to keep on studying, but I had missed the term. And um, we actually stayed there, you know. We stayed there in camp until the lawyers had settled the case. So we were there for over four months, five. So after seven months, I came back home, and I had these experiences of the rituals and meeting several different medicine people and the culture. And some chores that I was supposed to do at home, but I had the feeling I'd found something for myself, I really changed, but the people at home would take me as the same person as I, that I was when I left, and I felt so different. That what, I,
0: what was you feeling deeply?
1: I felt more connected. I felt more myself, I felt more spiritual, but on the same kind, the depression was that I felt I'd found something in another culture that I couldn't live where I was living. It was very hard because I couldn't really, I wasn't the same person anymore. But on the same time, I was young, I hadn't finished my studies, I had lost my apartment, so I had to move back to my parents'. That was very hard when you have to move back to your parents when you are 24 or so. And um, I couldn't go on with my studies. I had to pause for another half a year. And I didn't know how I could integrate what I've learned into my life. I just didn't find any way to do it. And that was very hard.
0: How long it took?
1: I think it took half a year until I had to I had to go out and go back to study. <laughs> and of course I went to work to pay back some of the money that I'd spent traveling. But I think really it started again to be back in life, going back to university and also... The balance, you know, I'd found something, but I couldn't, it wasn't like mine. I found something in another culture that I hadn't been able to, to make it to mine. And very later when I went to study yoga, become a yoga teacher, and I spent a long time in India in an ashram to become a yoga teacher, I had the feeling that the balance of the Native American very down-to-earth culture and In the indian culture that's that's more directed to the connection to the
0: spiritual spirit world
1: above i had the feeling that at that time both of those worlds came together and something happened within myself that made me whole again wow so that made me find my very own center again
0: and what did you study
1: I studied graphic arts because I wanted to be self-sufficient. From the beginning on, I didn't want any profession where I had to be employed. I studied graphic arts. Later, I worked um, in different kinds of jobs. I worked as a graphic artist. I, during my studies, I already had my own little studio and worked on the side. And then I was employed for a year, but after a year, I couldn't bear it anymore. And I found out that in the city where I lived, they started a private radio station. I just heard it when I was sitting in a coffee one one lunchtime. And then I went there, and they employed me. And that was the job I loved most. I started I helped starting that radio station from zero. Wow. We rented a room. We made all the contacts that we needed, the journalist contacts for Switzerland, Austria, Germany, and then we had 24 hours live program. So I became a radio journalist and that was a, a part where I could being the servant for my people, in my city, at least, by trying to make them happy when I would talk on the radio, by the kind of music I would choose, by the kind of words that I would choose, even when I had to talk about depressing things. So I was always thinking about how I can do, especially in the morning, how could I bring people into the day when I had to report about a boring decisions that the city had made the last day. <laughs> and, then, and the nice thing was to, to build the whole thing up. I like to organize. I like to bring people together. And I really loved it to talk to the people.
0: And did you continue your relationship with Native American tribes
1: Yes, over the years. Actually, it was really great because after I got home and, and finished my studies, we had like a support group for Native American political issues. And a few years later, someone called up and asked my help to build up a radio station for Native Americans. So I came over and said, yes. <laughs>
0: Wow, radio station for a Native American. So you were really merging both of your lives. But they just came together.
1: But actually the radio station never happened. (laughs) Because it it wasn't legal there yet. So it would have been like a station in a car that had to be secretly and hide all the time. But um, I came in the middle of a new political struggle. So I got back into these political things. Big style. There were European companies that wanted to drill for oil in a protected area that was right outside of a nation, uh, national park. So, again, I started a huge action. So, within a few weeks, I organized support groups all over Europe and we organized, we invited Native American elders to Germany and traveled with them around Germany, Switzerland, Austria and we organized talks. We went to the United Nations, to the Greens in, in Germany, to the Green Party and tried to make those two oil companies move out of the project. There were two European oil companies and one American. And we managed and I think the biggest part was my Goal to not do it like for me, Greenpeace. They always say, Oh, it's going to be so terrible. And I said, Wow, I tried to make it positive. I tried to say, Wow, there's a huge piece of nature, and when we act now, we can protect it. And I had so much support from all those support groups over Europe. So within three months, We had demonstrations in front of every U.S. embassy in Europe. And my letters got opened because they wanted to know who I am. When I sent my picture for an article in the U.S., the letter was opened. The picture was not in there anymore. And stuff like this happened. And um, we really managed to have those two oil companies pulled out of the project. And then the American oil company pulled out, too after a few years. But that experience made me come back every year to my native partners to talk about how to go about uh, the project and how the next steps would be. And again, I was allowed to learn so much. I learned how connected they still are and how connected they are still to to be in a community versus us being more individual individuals in our thinking so that was very interesting to deepen my experience from before
0: and was it also the nonviolent resistance
1: of course it was always nonviolent i never wanted to really break the law um, Of course I did. You're not supposed to do nonviolent resistance in in a foreign country. But um, when you don't hurt anyone, I think it, it was never easy for me to follow unnecessary rules or that made no sense when you would not harm anyone. Why not be free if you don't harm anyone?
0: So you know the first time you were in this non-violent resistance, it just came to you. You were you were given the circumstances to participate and you did. Next time it was more a choice or a conscious choice to be there. What did you learn in between? What had changed?
1: In between, that is interesting that you asked this question. Because I'd realized after the first time, I did not want to go back home. Something in me knew that my experience is not finished yet. I had, when I decided to go back home, I had a dream every night that I would go home and I would arrive at home. My parents would pick me up at the train and I would cry and cry and cry because I wanted to go back to the U.S., and um, the second time I made myself really free, I sold everything. I sold my. I sold. I gave up my apartment. I sold my car. I sold everything that I owned except I kept two boxes that I couldn't sell on, in my parents' place. I left two boxes of stuff, and I really had my backpack and myself. And I was time wise, I was free. And I was very scared, leaving my home, my job, and everything, thinking I would do a trip around the world, but knowing, not knowing where to go, where it would end up, and thinking maybe after three months I'm back home. <laughs> maybe I'll fail. Maybe I'll be all alone and desperate. But I left and I came back two and a half years later, oh. and I traveled all the world. And it was also the second time that I came to the US for the for the longer for the new project. After two and a half years, I was this time I was so happy to come back home. I just was sick of just needing to find out what I wanted to do, where I wanted to sleep, what I wanted to eat. I wanted to go home and be part of something bigger, building something up. Not just wandering or th- thrifting around the world.
0: And then you came back?
1: I came back, and again, after two and a half years, it was really hard to go back and be part of structured german life with a job and your apartment and everything
0: but no depression this time
1: no depression (laughs) i was looking forward to staying around place and, and making a home and doing something useful not just traveling around so i wanted to be part of of creating something something useful
0: and what came up
1: I think the final thing that came up is that I wanted to share what I was allowed to learn with Native American culture. So I started, not right away, but in the process, I started a company where I would guide people from Europe to the U.S. to meet with Native American people, like a cultural exchange thing. So my intention was that the people really can meet from heart to heart and they have time to talk, not just like visit and look at something from the outside. So they, I would take them to the Native American reservations, we would visit families and spend time together, eat together, uh, live together, and it was a very, very nice experience for me to be able to be kind of a bridge builder. That's what some of the Elders had told me before that the people that were killed in war, that they tend to be born on the other side of the ones who won the war, oh. And then when they are grow up, they come back to where they lived their last life, and, and they said, and some of them are going to be bridge builders." And they said, I would be one of those." And I felt always that I'm one of those that bring, so I can bring the people together. And it was nice to bring the people over there to bring something that they needed and we could experience what they had to offer. And it was the, most of the people that traveled with me said that it was their most deep touching travel ever even people from the u.s that traveled with me or people that lived in the u.s for a long time and i think part of it is also also my my family skills that i learned as a kid yeah to go back to make a group feel like a family
0: community
1: community right
0: And some part of me is saying that it's also your giving back. Just correct me on that. Because this Native American tribe has given you so much, giving a purpose to your life. And it might be that you are sharing that purpose with others.
1: Exactly. I'm sharing the purpose. And I'm, even if it's only money that we bring, it's something that is always needed. And also, we bring. I think every culture has the opportunity to learn from each other. Even our German structuredness sometimes is useful in areas like that. And some of the the native friends that we visit, they say, oh, Karina, we have so many problems. It's the greatest time every year when you come with your groups. We can laugh. We can have good and light times together. And it helps me through all the year. Wow. And that is beautiful. That's very beautiful. Yes.
0: So, Corina, I'm just having this question at the back of my mind. So, if I look at you now, I see a German, white German, European woman. And we are talking about Native American cultures. That How does that happen? You know, I know it's a bridge building what you talk about.
1: It's very interesting. I just went back and went back and went back, and um it's hard to explain. I mean, you know, we Germans reading Karl May, you have may heard of about these books, where the Native American was the good one, and the white guy is where the bad guy once. That may be a big part of Germans loving Native Americans. Also, there is a common thing, I think, that the German people and and I think Swiss people are included in that and Austrian people. We love our nature. Yes. And it's something that Native Americans have too and they express it just in in a deeper way than we can. So there's a connectedness And today, it's really interesting. Because, you know, since a year, since a little more than a year, we cannot travel there anymore. Yes. And it's like a natural circle that came to an end for me. I was able to learn so much about different cultures, South American uh, tribal people that lived in the rainforest, very remote African tribal people, Native American tribes, different tribes that even my German extended family and and then there is something that's called intentional communities, like Oroville yeah. yeah. or like like different little Findhorn, communities, yeah. Fintorn, right? And um, I was always interested in that community part of our human living together. So I have the feeling what's coming next is being like wandering on from being the tour guide, of being a help to connect different communities, maybe even new communities in our different times in our difficult times right now.
0: Thank you for sharing this wisdom. Thank you for sharing your life journey. My last question to you is where are you, how do you see you evolving further?
1: For me, as I said before, kind of the travel part is finished and I think what I want to have is more time to go deeper into the spiritual world, to be more connected, not only in hours when I get out of the office, uh, going back to even live closer to nature. And on the other hand, be a help to to connect people to each other, to that they can share their wisdom and maybe their inventions or their thoughts. And for that I'm creating an online congress and it's about the connectedness of health and community. Wow. So to really be healthy, we need community and the community, of course, needs us. Yeah, And it's not only about what we can get from community it's everyone wants to give himself so it's also how can we live our potential to the fullest and give it to everyone to the community so I'm very excited about it because radio being a servant to a large number of people that was my favorite from all the things that I did
0: (laughs) (laughs) and if I look back It it joins all the dots of your life, starting with in a community with, let's say, 5,200 people as uh, extended cousins network. Then going into this non-violent resistance with Native American, but not only the resistance, but getting their spiritual side, getting their wisdom, getting that intimate connection with the nature and getting that feel of, Health, the real health of well being, and then this radio story. And as I feel, all these three are coming together in this online congress.
1: Yes, and it's also a big part of it is also risking my life in this non violent resistance, risking my life being willing to give it up, and that made a new life for me.
0: Martin Luther King Jr. said, At the center of nonviolence stands the principle of love. And love transcends boundaries. Corinna's love for the justice for fellow humans in the different part of the world connected her to a new culture in which she found her own meaning. This is what we call The interconnectedness of being human.